chapter 3. We're in the midst of a series called Our Imperfect Family, and we're talking candidly about family. We're talking candidly about some ideals that can be put in front of you that are not what we are called to as a biblical reality. And so you may even notice through the design that there's this idealized at times what, what unfortunately some like on, on Madison Avenue or what might be known as the Mad Men kind of tried to put forward for years as the ideal family. And, and it's easy to see how gross that is. It's easy to see how distorted that is. It's easy to see how that doesn't even represent the, the families that are sitting around you right now. So what is family? I don't know, for me, for, I'm, I'm for one so glad that the Fast and Furious franchise is extracting yet another car movie out of Vin Diesel's bald head. That, thank you for laughing, that was a joke. Is family everything? It's been a long time. Right? Is family everything? Or is it nothing? What does Jesus have to say about that? But what, maybe I could ask it this way. What is your understanding of family rooted and grounded in? Is it your experiences, good or bad, with your family growing up? I appreciated Charlie Fitzgerald leading our men's ministry yesterday in our meeting together. I'm not going to stop an awkward clap. An awkward clap is our love language here. Appreciated Charlie leading our men's ministry yesterday, but he started in talking about finances with your experience with your family. Have your experiences with family been good? Has it been something that you, you say, like, I came out of a healthy family. I turned out fairly normal. Are you, are you coming from a broken home where it's experienced the effects of the fall? Maybe sin? Maybe you're not even sure what happened in your family. You just know that it's scattered and it fell apart. What, what does God's word have to say to us today about family? Is it everything or nothing or something in between? Well, we have to answer this question. Who is it that should have the ability to speak to our understanding of family? And that's what brings us to our passage today. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Father, we pray that your word today would help us to understand your calling on our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start this morning by helping us see through this passage that families are created by God. Now, last week as we began this series, we looked at how families... That the church is the family of God, that it's the family that he created, that it's the family he calls to himself, that he chooses for himself, that he bought at a great price through his son, Jesus Christ. There's a wonderful picture of the church, but does the church replace the natural family? 
Unfortunately, there are some who would say that the nuclear family is dead. They would say that there is no place for it in our society anymore, that family is just who you choose to love. But that can feel empty very quickly, can't it? We're almost at this place where there is an existential crisis in the world today when it comes to understanding family. But we see through Scripture that families are created by God. So with Him being the one who is the source of that, we should probably look to His Word to see what He has to say about it. Our passage today begins by saying that Paul is bowing his knees before the Father. God as our Father, from whom every family and on earth is named. We begin with creation here. I want to give us just a bit of a framework to understand uh, what's happening in Scripture here. It's very simply put in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. We're going to kind of look through Scripture very broadly, kind of skimming the surface to see what it is that God has to say about the family. But he is bowing, Paul here in Ephesians chapter 3 is bowing his knees to God the Father from whom, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. So we have to look back to creation to understand. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, they, they give us a wonderful picture of his creation of Adam and Eve. And he's establishing the first family and he is speaking to them as adults. Because he gives them a command to be fruitful and multiply. Babies can't do that. Adam and Eve are created as adults and they they are being told to be fruitful and to multiply. And so what we see here is the establishment of the first family. And this is what Paul is affirming in Ephesians chapter 3 when he says, From whom every family in heaven and on earth are named. He is the father. He is the source. He is the creator of all of these families. Now we're not going to extensively go through Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We did a series in the book of Genesis a, uh, about a year and a half ago called Origins. Of course, I know that you remember every sermon from that. I don't remember every sermon for that, so, so uh, there's no expectation of that. But if you want to go back and review that, I do want to let you know that it's online. Because what that series was showing us is that God is the creator and he is the source of all good things. Sometimes I think that we forget that in our lives. We begin to just look to the left or to the right and we forget that God is the source of his good design. And we start to look to his good design for understanding the purposes of his good design rather than looking to him. And so we might believe an article like what we see in the Atlantic that says the nuclear family was a mistake. Whose mistake? God's. I don't believe that to be true. I don't see that to be true through Scripture, but I see a misunderstanding of what it is that God has given us in the good gift of family. So Adam and Eve are given an assignment to be fruitful and to multiply and to have dominion and stewardship over creation. They're to be fertile and to reproduce. And so we begin to understand family. A family may be defined as one man and one woman united in marriage. Until the death of a spouse. 
or there may be natural and adopted children and, and then kind of secondarily other persons that are related by blood. This week we have extended family in town. So there's extended family that lives here and then there's extended family that comes in from out of town. And then that extended family becomes for this week kind of primary family. Anybody else ever experienced that? That's not a bad thing. That's actually something good in God's design. Being gathered together. Because in biblical times, extended families actually live together in larger households. Now, I love my extended family, but they can go home. <laughs> Welcome, David and Beth. We're glad you're with us this morning. No, I'm teasing. In biblical times, extended families would have lived together. Of course, in, in our modern Western culture, the family unit is usually comprised of the nuclear family, the father, the mother, the children living together in the same household. The Israelites throughout Scripture saw themselves as a large and extended kinship group. So how is it that even if Scripture talks about family in two different ways, and the, and the nation of Israel had all of these different understandings, how is it that we should understand the family? Well, let's look to the Old Testament just for a moment. Israel would have understood four major terms as it related to family. People gathered together. That would be the the, the nation itself. Then Israel, later in, in the Old Testament, was divided into 12 different tribes. There was a split even in the nation that happened. And these tribes are then in place. And then there's kind of a, a clan that is referenced at different times. And then there was the house of a father. So the nation of Israel was made up of people known as a nation, tribes reflected people's structure as descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob, and clans designated a subgroup smaller than the tribe but larger than the family. Got it? Clear, right? I've always wanted to be a part of a clan. I've always thought that'd be cool. Like, like have a, some, if I had a Scottish accent and a clan and a custom-designed flannel just for me, that'd be nice, right? No, see, the scripture begins to help us to understand certain aspects of, of a godly order and a, a godly rule and reign that actually represents something about the character of God himself. And this is what's important for us to understand. When we see these structures, when we see these, these rules and orders being put in place, there is actually something for our good and for our benefit in that. But it reflects a greater good. And I think at times we lose sight of that, don't we? Sometimes it just feels like the greatest good that can happen to me today is that I survive it. And so we're going to look for lesser goods. We're going to look for good enough. We're going to look for adequate rather than created for. The Hebrew term for family, literally the father's house, was actually not like our Western understanding of family at all. It consisted of everything as a part of the house. The extended family, the, those that worked for them. There was these large extended families, maybe even the, the married families within a couple's married family, and, and as of yet unmarried sons and daughters from those families. And, and the list just goes on and on and on. There was something rich about the ordination as the, of the family. 
It was intended to be the foundational institution of human society. If I were to ask you the question today, what do you see as the foundational institution of a flourishing society? I have concerns over what the answer to that question would be. Because I think it would be things other than family. And so it's important for us to pay attention to families. It's composed by people that are related to one another by marriage, by blood, or adoption. And you know what that is? That's a beautiful picture for us to understand the role of families in the plan of redemption. This is where I want to keep kind of drawing our eyes from what we experience in this world to what it was intended to be to begin with. I've begun to include this in premaritals, and I think I've mentioned it before, but I just want to say it again so we kind of capture a vision of this as a church. I think one of the most magnificent things that happens on a wedding day isn't necessarily visible to you or I. You know the genealogies that we all kind of get bogged down in or kind of fake our way through in devotions? Do you realize that in God's name, another limb is being added to his family tree on a wedding day? That another line of heritage from God the Father as our source is being added on the wedding day. And I've begun sharing this with couples in premarital counseling as we're kind of working through the details of the day. It's, it's the biggest party you've ever planned in your life. And at some point you're going to look at each other and say, why don't we just elope? We know those moments. We do four to six premarital sessions and we know those moments. We see it happen with almost every couple. There comes a point where it's like, we should have just taken the money and run. Dad said we could just have the money. But then we want to draw their attention to something bigger. Do you realize what's happening? Your name is a part of those lineages now. So let's live for something bigger than ourselves. Let's not worry about the details of the wedding day. Let's rejoice in the one who gave us this day to begin with. See, I think that that begins to change our perspective. It begins to help us remove ourselves from the center of the equation and put Christ back to the center of the equation where he should have been all along. I'm going to assume the quiet right now. I don't normally call this out, but I'm going to assume the quiet right now is we all know exactly the moment that I'm talking about. Where our eyes just come down. Our vision just comes down. And remember, I'm still in creation. I'm still in creation because this is something beautiful that God has intended. And Paul is writing to us here and he's saying, I'm bowing my knees to the Father, the one from whom, as the creator, every every family in heaven and on earth is named. Oh, it's beautiful. But Paul's writing to us as a single man. So you may think, wow, Chris, you're really hitting like married couples, husbands, wives. What about the singles? Paul's writing as a single man. Paul has this vision for himself. If you are here today and you are single, whether by your own choosing or a lack of options, I don't know why you're single, but you too can have this vision and actually see something beautiful about family. Here's the thing. You are a part of a family. And we're going to see in just a moment 
why that's so important. That you too should have a vision for this. But Paul is writing to us as a single man. He is saying to us that you too are a vital contributing part of a family established by God. But this is where understanding God is the source of that actually gives strength to fight for the good design intended for families. See, we should all have this mind among ourselves today. God makes it clear in Genesis 1 and 2 that he is the one who created us for one another. And as soon as God created man, he saw a need for another and the woman was created. And so families are are to play a role in how God provides others for those who are unmarried at this time. There's much that scripture has to say to men, women, married, single, young, old. See, the Old Testament gives us numerous precepts and principles related to husbands and wives and children. We're going to look at children uh, just this next week in Psalm 127. But see, I'm differentiating between principles and precepts here. Maybe this analogy can help us understand. A precept, in a general sense, is any command or order intended as an authoritative rule of action, but applied particularly to commands respecting moral conduct. So the Ten Commandments would be an example of precepts. Maybe another way that we experience this on on a regular basis is if you're driving down the road and it says speed limit 35 miles an hour, that's a precept. There's no give or take. There are actually a couple of officers out on 436. I hope none of you met them this morning. And I noticed that they were there enforcing precepts. No faster than 45. And then there are principles. What is a principle? It's to establish something firmly in the mind. But a principle might look more like this. When, when my boys leave the house and they're getting ready to drive somewhere, my wife will say to them, drive carefully. That's a principle. And you know when they break the difference between the two, when they name a number that they've gone on the road, and I'm like, don't say that around your mother. Right? Because then it's, did did I die? No, you didn't die. But you said the thing out loud you shouldn't have said about how you were breaking the precept. I can't be the only dad that's ever had that conversation with his kid. Precepts and principles are important for us to understand rightly from Scripture. Here's my concern. We don't give attention to it in the first place, or worse than that, we treat everything in Scripture like a principle and not a command that has the authority of God himself behind it. And when we begin to water those things down, it begins to erode and degrade the created good of God's design. We have to recognize that, church. This is something that we actually have to have a vision for. I don't say that to be some kind of condemnation. I say that to to call us to lift our heads, to see clearly and rightly what it is that God has so wonderfully given us in the family. But when it comes down to it, these precepts and these principles, they point to two key things throughout the Old Testament. They point to a passing on the message of the good news of the gospel. Now, in the Old Testament, they would not have had the 
new covenant. They would have had several old covenants to build on, depending on where you're reading. But they are passing on the message of the one who made them. That's actually what Paul is doing here as well in the context of Ephesians chapter 3. He is saying that there is the mystery of the gospel being revealed, how this gospel is going out from families, it's going out from the nation, it's going out from this singular siloed aspect of people and is reaching not only those who are Jewish, but those who are Gentiles as well. And there is a mystery in that, that God would say, look, I'm going to do this work all over the earth, and you get to be a part of that. But in being a part of that, you need spiritual strength. Perhaps even as we're looking at these precepts and these principles today, you realize it's exhausting even just to think about it at this level. Imagine trying to live it every day. I know. I know that to be true. I know that to be true even from just getting ready together this morning with my family. I know that to be true. I'm not saying that my family is exhausting. Paul is. We need spiritual strength for these things, don't we? We need strength to to encourage one another. We need strength to do what we were talking about with Thomas and Ashley, just to be an encouragement to one another. Why do we need those things? Because it is so easy to be discouraged in this world. Passing on the message is a part of what we're called to do. What else are we to do? Well, we're to train up others. We're train up children. Now, this could be both those who are physically young by age or those who are spiritually immature we are called to train up children in our text today paul's goal is that the individuals that make up the church would be spiritually mature trained up no longer spiritual children but mature believers in the context of family that means passing on the good news of this message so that they can be trained up in the ways of god And here's where we can face for some families here today one of the most tremendous discouragements of all. See, grasping this today not only helps us to not discount the counsel of the Old Testament, it helps us to rightly apply it to our lives today. And and there are parents here that may say, I thought I did all of the right things. But see, understanding this framework helps us understand the whole of Scripture because He is the Creator, but there was a fall that came. There was a fall that came. Adam and Eve couldn't even make it two chapters. Now, there's no timeline actually given for that. But in chapter 3 of Scripture, we're shown that there is a fall that comes. And unfortunately, that discouragement that you're feeling today is an effect of that fall. You long for your children to be returned to the Lord, and it's difficult to see them not wallowing in fallenness. See, what God says to Adam is that he will toil the ground, and the work that he is called to do in stewardship of creation is going to be more difficult Every time I'm dealing with the vines that cut up my hands in my yard, I curse Adam just a little bit. 
That's the toil of dominion. Adam and his sons are going to have to till the ground. And to Eve, God says that she will bear children in pain. What we should recognize here is that the responsibilities that showed up in glory in the first two chapters of Scripture continue after the fall. But they are much, much harder. Have you ever experienced in that in trying to pass down the message in your family? To share the good news of the gospel with your family? Have you ever experienced that in training up a child? Those responsibilities that we carry, they're still there, but they're, they're harder. They're more difficult. And Paul is praying for us for spiritual strength because there is a life that families have in carrying the weight of civilization as a foundational part of that created order, but it's more difficult because of sin and its consequences. If I were to ask for a show of hands, have you experienced that? I'm, I'm assuming that across this congregation, married, single, children, no children, a child who is kind of estranged from parents at the moment, I imagine we all have experiences with this. And here's where it's so important for us to understand rightly, because see, the New Testament, rather than preaching a gospel that it urges to make uh, believers to make marriage their ultimate priority, vital as it has a place in his creation, it's not a priority. See, Jesus placed natural families in the larger context of the kingdom of God. This is where we find ourselves today. So what does it mean for us today, church? It means our commitment to the truth may lead to division in our families, not peace, especially in our natural families. And if that's the case, then Jesus is the one who should take precedence. Jesus taking precedence is actually a part of our Christian witness to our families. But those are not going to be easy moments. They need to be handled with care. They need to be bathed in much prayer. But if it's going to lead to division, Christ must win. His ways must win. See, we, we don't want to make marriage our ultimate authority. We don't want to see that as the sign of maturity. That would also be a gross misunderstanding of Scripture. Jesus upheld natural relationships. He upheld marriage being a gift from God. The need to honor one's parents. But he also said that being a disciple of his is the higher calling. How often are we tempted to trade the highest good? I know I am. I know that I am. How often are we tempted to give in just a little this one time on Sunday night because I'm tired and Monday's coming? I know I am. How often do we find ourselves struggling to understand the good and the fallenness of this design? What Paul's going to go on and show us is that our call now is to witness within the context of our families. Let's just look again briefly at the, the verses that follow. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 16 
that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, that through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's not miss the connection here. In Paul's prayer, he asked the Father for power through the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. This is actually one of the epistle's many references to the Trinity. And I think this is important to note here that even as we're beginning to look at this and we're seeing creation, fall, redemption, and consummation to come, as we understand some of the frameworks that Scripture gives us to to know how to live rightly, to, to receive strength in our time of need, it's important for us to understand the Trinity. It's important for us to understand and encounter the Trinity. I think that we would all benefit. Our lives would be richer. There would be something that would inform our prayers differently. Our praise would look differently. Our Christian practice would look differently if we understood the Trinity rightly. If we saw the Trinity as something for our good... And not where the Holy Spirit now tells me that I'm separated from the Father a little bit, just in case I do something wrong. That's not how it works. Through Christ mediating, we have access to all of it. And we need the richness and the fullness of that in our lives. We need it to inform our vision so that we see something so much bigger than that tiredness or that weary moment on Sunday night. That conflict that happens in the bathroom, that moment where life doesn't seem like it's going right, where one child wants to pick on the other, and the other one wants to be hurt by everything that gets said in life. We need the fullness of God in those moments, don't we? You know what doesn't work? The fullness of me. You know how I know? I've tried it. Doesn't work every time. You know what the fullness of God does? works every time it's a witness that's a witness in the midst of that moment see the trinity gives structure to our understanding for our family both in its structure and in its roles you ever had those moments as parents where one of your children brings something to you and they're giving you this news and neither one of you have heard it so you're kind of doing like the little how are we reacting side eye how are you reacting? How are you reacting? Well, I don't know. How are you reacting? I don't know. How are we reacting? I don't know what to do in that moment. We know those moments regularly. Or you have the other moment where a parent walks up with a child to show the thing. And, and I, this is how I experience it, right? I kind of look up and Stephanie's going, we're rejoicing in this. Inform your face as you hear this news. Y'all laughing because you've seen it. Or you've done it. Or then there's the other one. Uh, Your child has something to share with you. (laughs) Oh, yes, okay, let me me hear this news. We we know these moments. See, the the, the Trinity gives structure to our understanding of the family and and its roles and its structure. But there is, we are not left in a fallen state. Isn't that good news for us today? 
There is redemption. And this is one of the the third and most beautiful narrative arcs in Scripture. It's called redemption. It's God's purpose from before creation. This has been his plan all along as he unfolds this redemptive plan throughout Scripture. He wants us to see that through the blood of his Son, there is a new covenant which means that we belong to Christ. You know what my kids need in that moment is Christ, not Chris. How often is it that I try to give them me instead of Jesus? I'm tempted with this. I'm assuming that we're all tempted with this. But may we as a church be the the ones who get it right, that we give Christ over and over and over again. Less of me, more of you, Lord Jesus Christ. Because I need to experience that just for my own health. Just for my own spiritual strength. But if I'm not experiencing that, I can't help them to see that as well. Isn't it interesting that even as we think about redemption as it relates to families, that adulthood enters into the description of the Christian. In 1 Corinthians 13, 11, and 12, Paul tells us that when he was a child, he spoke and he thought as a child, but then when he says, when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He's giving something up. What? Immaturity. He's giving up being rooted and grounded in something else. There's this point of demarcation that happens between childhood and adulthood in the Christian life, isn't there? We are born again and we are babies in Christ. But the Christian life and faithfulness to being a disciple requires that we grow into full stature. Where is God calling you to grow this morning? That that growth into maturity, that's not the end. But where is God calling you to grow today? Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. There there is a glorification to come. There is a consummation to come. We are justified. We are being sanctified. And there is a day where we will be glorified. But in this day today, let me ask you, and you're being sanctified, where is it that God is calling you to grow up? Is he showing you the weakness of the foundation that you've been rooted and grounded in? In your own understanding? in the collective wisdom of the world through social media, in the collective wisdom of the world through parenting books, in the collective wisdom of the world through self-help for your marriage. The irony of that phrase, by the way. You're called to be one. Self-help. Where is God calling you today to grow up? The reason that this is important is there is a day coming. At the consummation, the completion of God's work of salvation. We're not talking about a progressive view of Scripture where we see that it just progresses from one thing to another, where we're put at the center of the story. No, we see this unfolding of a redemptive plan of a Savior who comes and redeems us so that we can be rooted and grounded in Him, not shaken by the storms of the world. 
Not shaken by the things that come and go. Not shaken at the news of the day. The latest thing trending. The latest thing that is in front of you. The latest notification that you get on your phone. Just a moment ago, my phone buzzed as I kind of stepped off stage and I thought, well, maybe something's happening that I need to be aware of. And it was just an Apple alert. You know what I don't need to be aware of right now? An Apple alert. But is our life rooted and grounded in those things? Is that every moment to us? In the new heavens and the new earth, the people of God will live as perfect spiritual adults. Makes me long for it even more. See, I don't fear that day. I don't want us as a church to fear that day. I want us to live for it. I don't want us to look at that day as as if it's some daunting day. I want it to, to see it as something that we long for. And it changes us even as we live for it today. The families that we have today point to a greater family to come. The perfect family. When we're raised to eternal life with Christ. So that longing that you have in your heart, whether you're here and you're young or old, children, single, couple, that longing for a perfect family, that's going to always be held in tension with our earthly experience of family. I don't say that to discourage you. I say that to equip you. That longing that you have on this earth will always be held in tension because the perfect family is to come. So let's not settle for the things we experience on this earth. Let's recognize that the longings that we have in heart, they were placed there by God himself as the source of those longings and the source of the perfect family to come, satisfied in him alone. I think as a church, we want to grasp this rightly. I am grateful today that I am building on a foundation that this church has taught for years. But I never want to assume that because we taught it in years past, that we are understanding it or experiencing it rightly in the present. So we're calling our attention back to these things because it'll change so much about how we live these everyday, in-between moments of life. So let me ask you again, church. What is your view of family rooted and grounded in? For those who are married, it's going to affect how you go about your daily lives. Living as if there's not a redemptive purpose to your family. Living as if your own role in that redemptive purpose isn't crucial. Remember, marriages are still used to put on display the deep mysteries of the gospel. For those who are single, this will affect how you interact with your family. Are you affirming and celebrating what is a God-given good? And are you pointing your family members to redemption and an an invitation to the larger family of God? You have a role to play in this. You are vital to God's purposes. Is your view of family more informed by your life experiences than it is God's word about it? Your view of your children, your spouse, your desire or lack thereof to be married. Are they shaped by the gospel's key for us to unlock the complexities of this life, even as we saw that G.K. Chesterton introduced us to last week? Perhaps it's, this is helpful for us to know the difference. 
is your entire life, or even the trajectory that has led you to where you are right now, defined by the moment that you're living in? See, I remember my dad introduced me to the phrase, I'm not here for a long time, I'm here for a good time. You know, there's going to come a day where that's not funny anymore. There's going to come a day where a long time means a long time. Are we rooted and grounded in that day? Because we know the one who's leading us there? Are we rooted and grounded in that day because we know the one who can satisfy the longings of our heart? Are we rooted and grounded in that day because we know the one who is going to lead us in what it is that he wants to do? And what scripture tells us that Christ leads us is the way everlasting. See, dad knew that phrase, but he lived for that day. The greatest example he ever set for me, living for that day. Dads, moms, sisters, brothers, singles, nephews, uncles, second cousins. I don't know. I, I lose track at some point. Live for that day. Live in light of the great to come in that day. And let it inform the good of today.